As of the November 2016 elections, 20% of the U.S. population lives in states that have legalized the supply and possession of cannabis. What the greater availability of cannabis will mean for public health remains to be seen, and it may depend on how jurisdictions decide to regulate its production and sale. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Bo Kilmer, co-director of the Rand Drug Policy Research Center. Dr. Kilmer has written a perspective article about the potential health effects of the cannabis legislation. Dr. Kilmer, to what extent were the potential public health consequences of cannabis legalization discussed in those states in the months leading up to the elections? Well, public health was a big component of the debate. Those who were against uh, legalization were really concerned about for-profit companies being allowed to produce and sell and advertise marijuana products, and to the extent that it's the heavy users that drive the market. This is the Pareto's Law 80-20 rule. 20% of the marijuana users that account for 80% of the consumption. Those that were opposed to legalization were really concerned that by allowing for-profit companies to get involved, that they're really going to be targeting and trying to create more of these heavy users. Now, stepping back, you have to realize that most of the discussion in the United States when it comes to legalization is based on a false dichotomy. You either have people arguing that we should keep it prohibited or keep the supply prohibited, or we should regulate marijuana like alcohol and allow for-profit companies to produce and sell it. What I try to get at in the piece is that there are a number of different options in between those two extremes for jurisdictions that are considering alternatives to marijuana prohibition. For example, jurisdictions could allow home production. They could allow collectives. They could even limit the market to nonprofit organizations or even create a government monopoly. So it's important to realize that while most of the discussion in the U.S. is focused on this for-profit commercial model, there are other alternatives out there for jurisdictions looking to do something different with respect to marijuana. You write in your article that legalizing the recreational use of cannabis should make it easier to study the therapeutic potential of the drug and should allow access for patients who could benefit from medical use of it. Are there any indications that that kind of research has been ramping up in recent months? to make a distinction between legalization at the state level and legalization at the federal level. So we know that we have these eight states plus Washington, D.C., which have legalized marijuana for recreational purposes, and we have more than 25 states that have legalized marijuana for medicinal purposes. This is still all illegal under federal law. And in fact, after the voters passed the initiatives in Colorado and Washington in 2012, no one was quite sure what the federal government was going to do. And it wasn't until later in 2013 that the Department of Justice released a memo indicating that for the time being, they weren't going to block implementation efforts in states as long as they had strong enforcement and regulatory systems. Now that we have a new presidential administration, it's unclear whether or not they're going to follow the path of the Obama administration or try something else. In fact, the Trump administration has a number of options, ranging from attempting to crack down on the marijuana businesses all the way to potentially legalizing. They could also reschedule marijuana, and that could actually have some implications for medical research. Because right now, according to the Controlled Substances Act, marijuana is classified as a Schedule One drug, meaning that it has a high potential for abuse and no currently accepted medical use. And with a drug being Schedule One, you can do research on it, research with the substance, but there are a number of different kind of hurdles you have to overcome. If you were to change the schedule for marijuana, that could make it easier to do research on the substance. 
you also write in your article that there are some important risks associated with cannabis use, psychotic symptoms, panic attacks, cannabis dependence. Has research identified any individual risk factors that might lead to those adverse effects? Well, a lot of the negative effects are linked with kind of frequent or heavy use. That said, especially for novice users who consume too much THC, sometimes those individuals end up having panic attacks, and a small proportion of them sometimes end up in the emergency room. There's some evidence that driving under the influence of alcohol is more dangerous than driving under the influence of cannabis, although driving under the influence of cannabis is still more dangerous than driving sober. But is the law enforcement community preparing for a possible increase in this driving under the influence of cannabis? Are there actually ways to assess cannabis-related impairment? You're right. The bulk of the research suggests that driving drunk is worse than driving stoned. But the bulk of the research also suggests that driving stoned is worse than driving sober. What the research also suggests is that those who are under the influence of both alcohol and marijuana really do increase their risk of getting into an accident compared to just using either one of the substances by themselves. And you're right, this is an important item that's discussed in legalization debates. And whereas with alcohol, we've got breathalyzers and the 0.08 threshold across the country, we don't have that for marijuana. And the issue is that THC and its metabolites can stay in the system for quite some time. So someone could test positive for marijuana, but not necessarily be impaired. And so it does create some real difficulties for law enforcement. There isn't some objective test to be able to measure impairment. I think there are a number of companies that are now trying to develop that type of technology. I think there's a lot of money for the companies that can pull that off. But in the meantime, it's going to mean that jurisdictions are going to become probably more reliant on drug recognition experts. This is kind of a special training for police officers. There's also debate about whether or not there should be some threshold. So while there isn't a strong scientific basis for what the threshold should be for the amount of THC in the system, there are some states that have created thresholds. It's interesting that in California, which just passed legalization in November 2016, that law explicitly did not include a threshold. So I think there's going to be a lot more research being done on this in the near future. You spoke earlier about the fact that the states that have legalized cannabis have some important decisions to make in terms of things like how it'll be supplied, how it'll be priced. Are those kinds of decisions being made with the public health interest in mind? Well, a lot of those decisions were built into the initiatives. Realize the eight states and plus Washington, D.C. that have legalized marijuana, they've done it all through the ballot initiative process. And in eight of the states, those ballot initiatives not only removed the prohibition on marijuana, they also allowed for-profit companies to begin producing and selling marijuana. It's interesting that in 2014, the voters in Washington, D.C., when they voted to legalize, they did something a bit different in that they removed the prohibition, but they only legalized home production and gifting. So you could kind of give it away. But in Washington, D.C., you can't just walk into a store and be able to purchase marijuana products. So for the eight states, we've got Colorado and Washington and Oregon and Alaska that had already legalized before 2016. And then in 2016, you had California, Massachusetts, Maine, and Nevada. They're already developing these kind of for-profit commercial systems. But they said earlier, that's just one option. I think one place to pay attention to is Vermont. So Vermont right now is having discussions about legalization And Vermont could actually be the first state in the U.S. to do this through the regular legislative process. 
as opposed to doing this through a ballot initiative. And currently they're having discussions right now about legalizing, but more along the lines of what's being done in Washington, D.C., where you could grow at home and potentially give it away, but you wouldn't necessarily have the stores that you see in Oregon and Colorado and Washington, and that will soon come online in California in 2018. Finally, what can states that are rolling out the legalization of recreational cannabis learn from our experiences with alcohol and tobacco about things like preventing young people from abusing them, other potential public health problems associated with them? Well, if you're a jurisdiction and you're going to allow retail sales, I mean, there's a lot of literature that's looked at regulations with respect to alcohol and tobacco in terms of the hours that the stores can be opened, what's allowed with respect to advertising kind of within stores, age limitations. So, so there's actually a lot that can be learned from alcohol and tobacco. Thank you, Dr. Kilmer.